Section three of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section three Shakespeare on Scenery. Dramatic Review, March fourteenth, eighteen eighty five. I have often heard people wonder what Shakespeare would say could he see Mr. Irving's production of his Much Ado About Nothing, or Mr. Wilson Barrett's setting of his Hamlet. Would he take pleasure in the glory of the scenery and the marvel of the color? Would he be interested in the Cathedral of Messina and the battlements of Elsinore? Or would he be indifferent and say the play, and the play only, is the thing? Speculations like these are always pleasurable, and in the present case happen to be profitable also. For it is not difficult to see what Shakespeare's attitude would be, not difficult, that is to say, if one reads Shakespeare himself, instead of reading merely what is written about him. Speaking, for instance, directly as the manager of a London theatre, through the lips of the chorus in Henry V, he complains of the smallness of the stage on which he has to produce the pageant of a big historical play, and of the want of scenery which obliges him to cut out many of its most picturesque incidents apologizes for the scanty number of supers who had to play the soldiers, and for the shabbiness of the properties, and finally expresses his regret at being unable to bring on real horses. In Midsummer Night's Dream, again, he gives us a most amusing picture of the straits to which theatrical managers of his day were reduced by the want of proper scenery. In fact, it is impossible to read him without seeing that he is constantly protesting against the two special limitations of the Elizabethan stage, the lack of suitable scenery, and the fashion of men playing women's parts, just as he protests against other difficulties with which managers of theatres have still to contend, such as actors who do not understand their words, actors who miss their cues, actors who overact their parts, actors who mouth, actors who gag, actors who play to the gallery, and amateur actors. And, indeed, a great dramatist, as he was, could not but have felt very much hampered at being obliged continually to interrupt the progress of a play in order to send on someone to explain to the audience that the scene was to be changed to a particular place on the entrance of a particular character, and after his exit to somewhere else, that the stage was to represent the deck of a ship in a storm, or the interior of a Greek temple, or the streets of a certain town, to all of which inartistic devices Shakespeare is reduced, and for which he always amply apologizes. Besides this clumsy method, Shakespeare had two other substitutes for scenery, the hanging out of a placard and his descriptions. The first of these could hardly have satisfied his passion for picturesqueness and his feeling for beauty, and certainly did not satisfy the dramatic critic of his day. But as regards the description, to those of us who look on Shakespeare not merely as a playwright, but as a poet, and who enjoy reading him at home, just as much as we enjoy seeing him acted, it may be a matter of congratulation that he had not at his command such skilled machinists as are in use now at the Princesses and at the Lyceum. For had Cleopatra's barge, for instance, been a structure of canvas and Dutch metal, it would probably have been painted over or broken up after the withdrawal of the piece, and even had it survived to our own day would, I am afraid, have been extremely shabby by this time. 
whereas now the beaten gold of its poop is still bright, and the purple of its sails still beautiful, its silver oars are not tired of keeping time to the music of the flutes they follow, nor the nereid's flower-soft hands of touching its silken tackle. The mermaid still lies at its helm, and still on its decks stand the boys with their colored fans. Yet lovely as all Shakespeare's descriptive passages are, a description is in its essence undramatic. Theatrical audiences are far more impressed by what they look at than by what they listen to, and the modern dramatist, in having the surroundings of his play visibly presented to the audience when the curtain rises, enjoys an advantage for which Shakespeare often expresses his desire. It is true that Shakespeare's descriptions are not what descriptions are in modern plays, accounts of what the audience can observe for themselves. They are the imaginative method by which he creates in the mind of the spectators the image of that which he desires them to see. Still, the quality of the drama is action. It is always dangerous to pause for picturesqueness, and the introduction of self-explanatory scenery enables the modern method to be far more direct, while the loveliness of form and color which it gives us seems to me often to create an artistic temperament in the audience, and to produce that joy in beauty for beauty's sake, without which the great masterpieces of art can never be understood, to which, and to which only, are they ever revealed. To talk of the passion of a play being hidden by the paint, and of sentiment being killed by scenery, is mere emptiness and folly of words. A noble play, nobly mounted, gives us double artistic pleasure. The eye as well as the ear is gratified, and the whole nature is made exquisitely receptive of the influence of imaginative work. And as regards a bad play, have we not all seen large audiences lured by the loveliness of scenic effect into listening to rhetoric posing as poetry, and to vulgarity doing duty for realism? Whether this be good or evil for the public, I will not here discuss, but it is evident that the playwright, at any rate, never suffers. Indeed, the artist who really has suffered through the modern mounting of plays is not the dramatist at all, but the scene-painter proper. He is rapidly being displaced by the stage-carpenter. Now and then, at Drury Lane, I have seen beautiful old front cloths let down, as beautiful as pictures some of them, and pure painter's work, and there are many which we all remember at other theatres, in front of which some dialogue was reduced to graceful dumb show through the hammer and tin tacks behind. But as a rule, the stage is overcrowded with enormous properties, which are not merely far more expensive and cumbersome than scene paintings, but far less beautiful, and far less true. Properties kill perspective. A painted door is more like a real door than a real door is itself, for the proper conditions of light and shade can be given to it, and the excessive use of built-up structures always makes the stage too glaring, or as they have to be lit from behind as well as from the front, the gas-jets become the absolute light of the scene, instead of the means merely by which we perceive the conditions of light and shadow which the painter has desired to show us. So instead of bemoaning the position of the playwright, it were better for the critics to exert whatever influence they may possess towards restoring the scene-painter to his proper position as an artist, and not allowing him to be built over by the property-man, or hammered to death by the carpenter. I have never seen any reason myself why such artists as Mr. Beverley, Mr. Walter Hahn, and Mr. Telbin should not be entitled to become academicians. They have certainly as good a claim as have many of those R.A.s whose total inability to paint 
we can see every May for a shilling. And lastly, let those critics who hold up for our admiration the simplicity of the Elizabethan stage remember that they are lauding a condition of things against which Shakespeare himself, in the spirit of a true artist, always strongly protested. End of section 3